Hello, my name is Dr. Deborah Fur Holden, and welcome to At the Forefront. Hello, and welcome to the Forefront with Dr. Deb. I'm your host, Dr. Deborah Fur Holden. I'm here today with two guests who are going to knock your socks off. Uh, for those of you who don't know, African-American adults have the highest stroke prevalence and suffer the most post-stroke disability of any racial ethnic group. Um, I'm here today with two you know, people blazing the trails to help turn that around. Um, I'm here with Dr. Leslie Scalaris and Alina Oliver of the Stroke Ready Project. And the Stroke Ready Project offers some very practical solutions to help us turn that around. So welcome, Dr. Scalaris. Thank you. Delighted to be here. And welcome, Alina. Hi, thank you so much for having me. All right. So I want to just let our audience know who you guys are um, and give you a little bit of your background, a little bit about your background. And also uh, want to take the opportunity to introduce one of my favorite community partners and colleagues, uh, Miss Ella Green Moten. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm wonderful. I'm excited to be here as well. Yeah, for all of our folks, I'm trying to convince Ella to be more active um, in this podcast and do some co-hosting with me. So I'm going to uh, put her on the spot here and there throughout the, 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 this episode. And we'll find <laughs> out in the future if I, if I did my job or not, depending on how much we can get her to show up. So thank you, uh, Ella, also for being here. Absolutely. Uh, so, Dr. Leslie, you're a stroke neurologist. Your research most, mostly focuses on behavioral health equity and community-based participatory research and health services research. Even though you might look like you're about 25. <laughs> she does. <laughs> Not true. You do. That you do. And our, our listeners, uh, for people who are checking us out online, will be able to see your youthful, smiling oh, yeah. um, face. But, but uh, I, for about 10 years, you've been working in partnership with the Flint community. Um, to prevent stroke and to increase, increase acute stroke treatments um, in the area. And, and that's no small amount of time and that's no um, small undertaking. Uh, tell us how you got into this work. When, tell me when you figured out you wanted to be a physician. <laughs> um, so when I wanted to be a physician, I was a science nerd. I love science. Um, and I thought I was going to be a scientist. And I worked in a basic science lab in undergrad at the University of Michigan. And I was a wonderful experience and I had absolutely no idea what the science was. I liked the environment, it was very zen and kind of fun hanging out there. Yeah. But in terms of like what we were actually doing, I had uh, no idea. So it seemed like that wasn't a good fit for me. Um, and so I decided the other, uh, started exploring other careers in science, such as a science teacher or going to medical school or um, uh, graduate school. And it just, I decided that ultimately the medical school combined my sort of love of science as well as interaction with people and trying to improve the lives of people. Well, lucky us. I think it would have been a waste of your talent to have you in a lab. <laughs> you probably you would have done great work there, but I'm glad for us that you um, chose the path um, of medicine. And, you know, as, as one of the real people out at the forefront of um, doing this health equity and health disparities work um, and doing it in a participatory fashion, uh, I think you picked a really great partner uh, for Stroke Ready. And so uh, I want to give Miss Alina Oliver <laughs> a chance to um, share a little bit about herself. Um, Alina, I know you're a Flint native. 
Um, you are a community trainer and partner on Stroke Ready. Um, you have a strong belief that being in the arts makes the world grow and makes the world better. You got a lot of credits under yeah. your belt. We're gonna talk. We're gonna talk about a lot of talents, right? <laughs> we're gonna talk about a lot of the work that you've done um, in and around Flint um, on Stroke Ready. But I think it's really cool um, for people to understand that the person behind that is also multi-talented. And I think a part of the strength of having somebody who's local to the community and as vibrant and prolific as you are behind the work is amazing. To that end, you've had many leading support roles as a thespian, including playing Effie in Dreamgirls, um, Lady in Brown for Colored Girls, uh, Mary in Auntie's House, um, among other things. You played Eveline in I The Wiz. Don't nobody bring me no bad news. <laughs> I love it. The first time I the first time I saw The Wizard of Oz, I was in shock. I said, "These people ripped off the wigs." <laughs> so, um, uh, you you just you, you have a really interesting um, background, and you've also been uh, recognized a lot in the local community, um, being nominated as the best gospel artist by Fly City Awards. So, um, again, for the people who uh, check this out online, they'll be able to see. Well deserved Fly City Award. Maybe we'll ask you to sing us out at the end. Hey, of the, I'll do it. <laughs> end of the episode. Um, and lastly, you own the um, She's Dope Curvy Boutique here in Flint, yes. Michigan. How did you get here then? How does a woman with wow. these talents end up in this health space? That just sounds like a lot with you reading it. Um, so I come from a family on my father's side of all musicians, singers, preachers in the church outside the church. So being an Oliver, you did not have a choice yeah. um, to sing or play an instrument. So that's where that cam came from. Uh, my father was a part of a traveling quartet um, singing group here in Flint, Michigan that traveled with um, national recording artist um, Rance Allen yeah. years ago, back in, like in the 70s and the 80s. So um, being influenced by my uncle and my father and his sisters, um, you know, I just took flight on my own, and I discovered theater um, at Flint Central Community, uh, Flint Central High School, with under the direction of Martin Jennings, and I became a thespian, and then my love for theater just took off from there, and now I currently uh, write plays myself um, at my home church, and also I'm a resident actress at the McCree Theater, so. I'm just everywhere. Anytime there's an audition and I feel like it's a good opportunity, I definitely stick my neck out there. I love theater. I love being on the stage. I love it. And yet here you are on the stage at the forefront of health for, for the community of Flint. How does how how was that experience for you? It was just super easy. I started out um what five years ago, I think. Four or five oh, yeah. years ago, it was a program called Praise. And um, my mom was like, hey, Alina, they're having this program at our church about stroke. And I'm like, stroke? What? <laughs> She's like, oh, it's $50. I'm like, okay, I'll go. I yeah, like, yeah. get the $50. And so <laughs> when I got there, they had different programs um, and different exercises within the workshop. And I just excelled at them. You know, they were like, Alina, you talk. So you talk for our group. <laughs> yeah. So I just started talking for the group. And so Dr. Leslie I was like, who is this girl? <laughs> and then, uh, what, two years later, she contacted me and was like, hey, would you like to be a part of Stroke Ready? And I'm like, absolutely. I love the program. I learned. Not only did I get the $50, but yeah. I also <laughs> learned about Stroke. And um, I felt like what they were doing for the community of Flint was awesome. And I had to be a part of it. So, All right. I love it. And we're grateful. We're grateful that you took up that call. 
So um, to get down to the heart of it, I, I was really um, blown away. And I, I don't know many people who haven't personally, um, African-American or, you know, uh, every racial ethnic group, you know, know somebody that's been impacted by stroke. But it's striking when you see the disparities in both rates of stroke and in outcomes after a stroke, right? So I've seen a lot of people who've had strokes and they recover just fine and it, you it, you almost can, you know, can't tell that, that, that anything happened. Yeah. But then when you look at the actual data, it's very different in the African-American community. So uh, Dr. Leslie, can you tell us a little bit about that and give us a little bit of the why? Yeah, so I think that the, and I want to sort of go back to the other question too about sort of why I'm a stroke neurologist and why this is of interest uh, or of more than interest of passion for me is that I, um, is that there's a real missed opportunity um, to reduce disability from stroke that most people uh, that many people are not taking advantage of. And I observed this in my residency, during my residency training, and it really felt like a big gap that we could, we as a society or we as a community could address. And that there are medicines to treat stroke. They work better the faster that they are given after stroke. And they're not used enough because people don't come to the hospital in time. And so this has been sort of the focus of Alina and I's work, my work for the last 10 years and her work for the last five or six of mm -hmm. trying to get that message out to the community to change that disability, those disability differences that you're speaking of. So I, 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 you know, like many others have been personally impacted by stroke. My grandfather had a stroke. Uh, I believe he was in his very late 50s, early 60s. He died um, within probably a year and a half or a year of having a stroke. But the the thing that, that um, I remember the most was evidently he had been stroking out. That's sort of the lay, lay language for about a day and a half mm -hmm. before we said something is wrong here. Mm -hmm. And actually the, the directions when that, that he got in our, you know, recommendation with our limited knowledge back then was he needs to lay down. Yeah. You know what I mean? He right. needs to rest. You just seem, yeah. you know, a little bit off. And so um, he was left with a terrible speech impediment, a half of his one side of his face. It almost looked like he had Bell's palsy, mm -hmm. like the one half just didn't move the way that the other half moved. He was kind of semi-paralyzed on one side of his body. Like mm -hmm. he it just suffered what they, I guess, call brain death right. on one side. And it just showed up in his functioning right. on the other um, side of his body. And so, you know, like I said, not just for me, but I'm sure for many others, um, this is something that really hits home. Why is the prevalence so much higher in African-Americans? Is it a risk for stroke? Is it what, what what's behind that? So the biggest driver of the differences in stroke is hypertension, so high blood pressure. Um, and there is data suggesting that even among people with the same level of hypertension, that blacks will suffer a greater risk of stroke at that same blood pressure as opposed to a, the white individual with that same blood pressure. So if there's one thing 
that I would my you know my public health message to prevent stroke would be would be prevent and or treat hypertension. That's the best thing you can do to prevent yourself from having a stroke. I gotcha. And so then there's this issue of even after having a stroke, right? So we've got African-Americans are at increased risk for having a stroke in large part due to higher incidence and prevalence of hypertension in that group. But then this thing we call post-stroke outcomes. So how people end up and how well they recover after Mm -hmm. having a stroke we've got a major disparity there much higher rates of morbidity and mortality from african-americans why is that Uh, so uh, that's multifactorial i think their answer is there's no there's no single there's no single entity that leads to the greater differences in post-stroke post-drug disability among African-Americans. I think like many uh, race disparities that we all study and try to intervene on, it's it's very complicated and that there are sort of reinforcing factors um, at many different levels, whether it's the, you know, the patient, the provider, the community, the system, that, but there's no, we spend a lot of, my group also spends a lot of time researching this and it seems like there's at least to, to date, in our knowledge, there's no single solution that's the driver of saying, if you fix X, race differences in post-stroke disability will go away. We, it's not that easy. I gotcha. I gotcha. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all wish there were simple solutions to this problem, but we, what we are going to do is talk about some of those solutions. So, Alina, you're the person that's, you know, out there on the ground floor, the face of this in many ways. You're interacting with people. Um, tell us, what are the signs of stroke? So um, we like to, um, when we come in contact with people, we want them to leave with the word FAST, um, which stands for F in the word FAST is for um, face drooping, and the A is for arm weakness, and the S is for speech difficulties, and the T is the most important one of all, is the time to get to um, the hospital and the time to call 911 and time to write down when those signs first started. So um, those are some of the signs of stroke that we like to stress when we do our workshops. So this is interesting because I would imagine that, um, and you, you all tell me if I'm right, the, the, the longer you're having a stroke or the longer it goes untreated, the more disability that one would expect afterwards. So while you're having a stroke, and Dr. Leslie, she can definitely expound on it, um, that you have 2 million uh, blood cells that they die every minute. And we know that your blood cells, they can't grow back. So the longer that you go without um, treating or getting the medicine, um, the TPA that is only administered at the hospital, you know, the more blood cells that you lose per minute. Dr. Leslie, put that in some context for us. Two million blood cells a minute. Uh, yeah, so two million neurons. Um, and how, course, how many do I have? I'm thinking <laughs> two million neurons. <laughs> you have tons. Yeah, right. I, you have a big old I'll brain. I'll be done after about fifteen. I do have a big brain. I do that's have right. a big brain. I'll take that. That, that sounds like a lot. It does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so tell us about that. So brain death, people. It, 
you know, for a lot of people, and in and, and the first time I sort of heard this and got the training, as somebody even who experienced it, yeah. it was like, I, I was taken aback. I was like, mm-hmm. this is terrible. And to think that it's right in my hands, I just need to know what I'm dealing with when I see it, or at least have the capacity to say, I'm not sure, but, but on, I need help. <laughs> on the chance that it is, let's get some help. That's Absolutely. Right. That's right. Right? That's right. So time is of the essence yeah. is what you're saying. Time is brain. That's what the... Oh, that's cool. I like that. I love it. Time is brain. And you know, I love, I love a good story. And, and I, don't, I don't know if I share with you the story of when my mom had a stroke. And so, because um, I want you to expand on this a little bit, and I want to, I want you to actually, um, Alina, walk us through the the cool. training. I will. Because uh, for people that don't have a lot of time, they might say to somebody, "Hey, you want to check this out?" And they can just zoom in to the couple of minutes and actually get the training. So I remember walking into her house, and it was interesting. She was sitting in the in a chair in her room. And, and my stepdad was out in the living room and my mom's a very particular neat person and he had crumbs and mess all over the living room. And my mom used to fuss at him for everything. So I came in like, Ooh, did my mom see all this mess? And he said, Oh yeah, but she in the room in there. So I went in the room and I was went in and I'm like, mama, did you see all that mess that you made? <laughs> and she sort of looked over at me and was kind of like, eh, you know, which wasn't her personality. Right. And, and she was actually a, a very clear uh, speaker. And I said, did you, you know, it's like Crumville out there. <laughs> and she sort of said, oh, and I had never had a problem understanding her words before. And only because of the experience that I had had 20 years earlier with my grandfather, with deep regret, not knowing what I was seeing. Not, not having this fast, the face uh, drooping, the arm weakness, the speech, right? Not knowing that, I just remember what my grandfather was left with, right. which was that face droop never came back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That speech never mm-hmm. came all the way back. And so I remember looking at her and I could see an ever so slight droop on one side of her face. And I knew in that moment, I said, I think you're having a stroke. And I remember asking her who the president was Mm -hmm. and I couldn't discern the answer. And I want to say she got the answer right, but it was so mumbled that I said, you're having a stroke. And literally when I went to help her get dressed, I noticed that everything was off on one side and she wasn't able to move that one arm properly. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have this, this, this acronym fast, the face droop, the arm weakness, the speech, and for people to realize time matters, time is brain. This is not the thing to sit around right. and question. Time you, is brain. Time is brain. You want to get into action. I just, I can't tell you how um, I think life-saving that will be for people and, and life-giving because the morbidity and the disability, that's tough. Yeah. That's tough. I think that that's, I mean, you're bringing up a really important point that, um, that stroke doesn't just happen to the patient, it happens to the fa- the family and their social network as well. It really changes the, the family dynamics and the when a person has a stroke survivor in their family. And so we we think of the you know, I, I we think of this as important that everybody knows this information because everyone is impacted by stroke. Okay, so now 
I want to get the training. All right. We're going <laughs> to unpack a little bit more, but I want to hear the training. So which version are you going to give us? So I'm just going to give you the coming up to the table at a fair version brochure, you know, because normally you only have like 30 seconds to get people's attention. You gotcha. Know? Um, when you're talking to them. So I definitely would just start with, hi, my name is Alina. I'm with Stroke Ready. And um, I just want to ask you a couple questions. Um, would you know how to recognize a stroke? Um, would you know how to recognize a stroke? Interview Ella. Right, okay, oh. interview you, cool. Ella, you're, you're up, Ella. I'm on. How do you rec uh, recognize a stroke? So I would have to remember the fast. Uh, facial drooping, um, A. I just oh the arm arm weakness arm weakness um s the speech slurring and uh think about the time element so i would ask you um do you know what a stroke is but at a fair she wouldn't say well that. yeah at a, at like, a fair, you wouldn't know that at first <laughs> i you probably wouldn't, wouldn't. You wouldn't know that fast but let's just pretend that you didn't okay, know that. okay okay so i would come up to you and i would just you know ask you do you know what a stroke is and um i've heard a lot about it but i really don't okay and so i would just Definitely say that a stroke is when a clot, it, it gets trapped in the brain and causes part of your brain to die. And then I would definitely emphasize that 2 million brain cells die per minute that a stroke goes untreated. And then I would definitely go through with you talking about um, FAST, what the F-A-S-T stands for. And since you already know that, you want to do that with me, F stands for face, face drooping and so A stands Alina, for... Maybe tell maybe talk about how to test for those. Yeah, I yep, I can absolutely go through that um, as well. How to test for those um, with the face drooping? Uh, what you would tell that person? You would tell them to smile. Um, if the smile is uneven, or if it's one eye, you know, eyebrow is higher than the other. It's not their makeup. It might be because they <laughs> might be having a stroke. Um, so that's one way you can identify um, and test that okay. with the face. And then A is for arm weakness. Mm -hmm. And to test the arm weakness, you would tell that person to um, extend mm -hmm. both of your hands out um, as far as you can. And then if one side goes down or if they're dropping things constantly and you know they're not a clumsy person, then that could be a sign of them having a stroke. And for speech difficulties, just tell them to repeat the sentence again. Mm -hmm. Or they might be slurring um, in their sentence on what they are talk, you know, saying. So Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's great. It really is. And yeah. even just sitting here listening to you talk about it and talking about that two million blood. And when you said it again. Let's get it straight. Two million neurons. Neur brain cells. Neur brain cells. Brain cells. Neurons. But even brain hearing cells. that, it, it was still shocking because yeah. it, even in my head, I know two million is a lot. <laughs> it seemed like yeah, so it's a lot. That How many brain cells do you with. have, Dr. Leslie? Does a person have? Tons of them. Okay. <laughs> Tons. Wow. Yeah, but I mean, you know, if you're losing them two million a minute, a minute, yeah. You know, and like I said, having waited about a day with my grandfather, the disability that he was left with, the thought that if we had just gotten him to the hospital within an hour, and see, dealing with that with a brother, I just had a brother pass, yeah. but prior to that, I had a brother have a stroke. Yeah. A few months ago, and so he's still doesn't have use of his left side. Mm -hmm. So, and it was time element right. because they found him. Yeah, and also in that training, I did leave out the TPA. Mm -hmm. um, I would definitely explain to a person that TPA works like um, 
you know, your kitchen pipes when it's clogged, use um, certain different types yeah. of um, Drano or something Drano, like yeah, to unclog it. And so that's how TPA, which is the medicine that can only be administered by the hospital, it works. So that's why I try. we try to stress time when you get in contact with the ambulance. And I like to tell people when I'm in the workshops, don't drive. Don't drive that person to the hospital because you have to be responsible for your driving. You have to stop at red lights. And then it, once you get in contact with the ambulance, they can get in contact with the hospital and prep the hospital and let them know that we have a possible um, stroke patient. And then what's important for you to do is just write down the time that you've seen the signs of these um, strokes you know, signs happening, write it down, what time it was, because TPA can only be administered a time window of three hours, right? Three to four hours? Yeah. Yeah. Three to four hours after four, the start of the Four show? and a half hours. Yeah. Uh, out to four and a half hours. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Mm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Alana, I know you got to go. Where, where are you headed? I am headed to um, Troy, Michigan. It's called Kensington. Got to sing. They have a Christmas program tonight, so I have to sing there. All right, give us a give us a quick outro oh. uh, before you go, and then we're gonna finish up with Dr. Leslie, and she's gonna tell us all about TPA and let us know about some of the community yeah, folks. Yeah, I'm sorry I have to go, guys, but I'm gonna say we wish you a merry Christmas. We wish you a merry Christmas. We wish you a merry Christmas and a happy new year. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. So talented. Yes, I yes. love it. So I love it. All right, we will take a quick break and right. we'll be right back. All right, we're back to at the forefront. Uh, so happy, Alina Oliver, uh, the wonderful Miss Alina Oliver, blessed us with that uh, outgoing Christmas song. But now we want to get right back into um, the conversation. And Dr. Leslie, I'm so grateful um, that you're here with us and that you're here in Flint and doing this work. Right before Alina left, she mentioned something called TPA. Tell us about TPA. Sure, so TPA is a medicine that is given in the emergency room through an IV, so it can only be given at the, at the hospital, and it is essentially a clot buster drug. So think of it as a, the analogy that makes most sense to me is that if you have a clot in your sink, you pour in Drano to empty out that clot, and then the water flows again. Well, TPA is that Drano. So there's a clot in your in a blood vessel in your brain. You get we give the TPA, and it cleans out that clot. Blood can flow again. The and those neurons that are after that clot can survive. So then there's a window of time. You said that that can be administered, that's and right. that's about you said up to about four about and four and a half, half hours. About mm -hmm. four and a half hours. So what happens after the four and a half hours? Are people just sort of you got what you got after that? So stroke care, so one of the best things in my field is that since I've been practicing, stroke care has improved dramatically. So the science of stroke is, has led to much greater treatment options than ever before. And so based on image, uh, based on sort of fancy imaging and procedures that we can do, we are treating patients outside of that four and a half hours much more so than, you know, even a couple years ago. So the message would be to come to the hospital if you're having a stroke and that there are now many more options to treat that stroke, Out, even, even in addition, outside of that four and a half hours. Okay, gotcha. So then this is a, a question that I, I think a lot of times people ask. And, you know, we, we hear a lot about people um, utilizing emergency departments and overusing emergency departments for really what could be 
better managed in primary care settings, et cetera. What if you're not sure? What should you do? You're not sure. You, you, you know, your loved ones, somebody in your house, somebody in your, your community that you interact with, you know, you notice, a, you know, slight sagging of the face and a little bit of speech slurring. What should you do? So I think that's really common and sort of being on the other side, um, you know, as a patient or, you know, with my family members, I recognize the, the, the momentum needed to call 911 and go to the hospital is pretty high. Yeah. Um, but for stroke, uh, there's such a window of opportunity that I would recommend to err on the side of caution that if those symptoms are present, it's better to be safe than sorry and to get evaluated. Any neurologic symptom is not normal. So any slurred speech, any drooping of your face, any arm weakness, difficulty understanding, that is not normal. And that needs to be evaluated emergently. Got it. So so, so it better to err on the side of caution. Mm-hmm. Better to get somebody into care as quickly as possible rather than staying at home and waiting and trying to figure it out. That's right. Okay, I got it. That makes good sense to me. So we got TPA, this clot buster drug. You got other now, you say innovations and sort of improvements in stroke care, even if somebody gets there outside of the window. And I want to keep reaffirming so that the the take home for people is fast. I think the take home for people is fast. And I think the, the second take home, there's, I guess if I could get across three things, it would be, it would be number one, stroke is treatable. There are treatments. They work better the faster we give them too fast. Now you know the symptoms. Um, and three, um, I guess there's two, sorry. <laughs> I'm so, like, wait, it's, try her arm, Ella. She got any arm weakness or anything? Here, can I say that again? So I think there are, th- there are t- the two take-home messages of today from my standpoint would be, number one, that stroke is treatable. There, tr- there are treatments for stroke, and they work better the faster that they're given. And two, the symptoms of stroke that we've alluded to many times now, the FAST acronym, and to just get to the hospital. I got it. Okay. So now we're going to go to the, to the big picture. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about where you think we could be heading. There's no right answer here. This is really where we sort of ask our, you know, experts and people who are at the forefront out on the skinny branches doing the work. What do you see? What do you think we need in medicine and public health or public policy if we really want to move the needle both on stroke and on stroke and post-stroke disparities? So I think we need, um, I think we need partnerships replicated like we have done. I think that my research program and, and I think that, and I think that many people who are doing community engaged research are, would say that, well, scratch that. I just want to speak for myself. I think that my my research is focused on taking things that are in medicine, outside of medicine, that are better served in the community. So prior to this approach about stroke awareness, the the idea was that, you know, doctors or nurses could teach people about stroke about stroke warning signs and the importance of calling 911. That's too small. This is a this is a 
Stroke is a d- disease that affects 800,000 people a year. Wow. There's no way that that, that, that message is going to get to all those people uh, at visits. There's just too many competing interests. So I think that we need to build that capacity in, co- in communities. And I think that Stroke Ready is a good example of showing the feasibility of that approach. So we're three quarters of the way through our community intervention and we've reached 5,000 people. That's amazing. Um, with our, with, with face-to-face contact, that's sort of not counting our social media campaign, not counting our mail campaign. That's people that are community-based, you know, community members who are peer educators have reached 5,000 people already. And so that is something that's scalable in every community. Um, and I think that the the key to to improving the health of communities is taking it out of medicine and into the in partnering with communities. I love it. Who are some of your um, community partners historically on Stroke Ready? So we have um, we're really fortunate to work with uh, an amazing group of community partners. So obviously Alina speaks for, is one of our community PIs as well as a woman called Elder Sarah Bailey. And, but in addition to our sort of community PIs, we've had, we have multiple community organizations that work with us from, um, from churches to neighborhood organizations to community health centers to, um, um, work, workplaces and schools and, we have really um, found that there is a great openness to this information, uh, suggesting that there's a great need and that, that we are have found something that is sort of reaching that that need, which is a is a win-win for for everyone. So this is really interesting because I don't know many physicians who would take up the mantle the way that you have. And I think physicians are great. I think medicine is great. I, you know, any anytime you've ever had to go into the hospital and, and you get a well-trained physician, you really appreciate, you know, the, the the tremendous amount of work that they do. But this idea that you're talking about and this notion, which I know you have some, I'm assuming, kindred partners and other physicians um, mm-hmm. who also operate that way, but I don't think it's the norm. And I, I'm curious in your perspective, is medicine ready for this type of medicine? Medicine that lives outside of the hospital medicine that is training people like Alina who's who's an actress and a singer <laughs> but is a credible messenger and charismatic and the kind of person that when she talks you want to listen you want to hear what she has to say you know the impact that she could have getting the message out for prevention and mm-hmm. an early intervention for people is much more far-reaching than you're going to get when you just tell people in the emergency department yeah I think medicine is I think medicine is getting there and is much more open to it. I think medicine is frustrated. They have, you know, tried sort of their standard approaches and and we it's gotten far. You know, there are sort of scientific advancements and things like that, but I think on a public health that's on a patient level, on a public health level, I think it has to come out of the out of the the halls of medicine, if you will. I mean, so I was on call last night and it's frustrating. So I was on call last night. We treated a patient with TPA, was textbook, the 
they had symptoms, they called 911, the, the ambulance, you know, notified the pre notified the emergency room. Myself and the neurology resident were waiting at it was like 8 p.m. waiting at the in the emergency room for the patient to come. The patient got TPA, went, went great. Next patient, a couple hours later, more severe stroke, delayed, you know, ha- symptoms had started, you know, hours ago, was not a candidate, was outside the window. And so it's those frustrating experiences where, you know, we could have, we as medicine could have helped that patient if they would have gone to the hospital, sort of motivates this whole sort of enterprise. And I think that physicians see that, 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 that there's a continuum of medicine and it doesn't just happen sort of in hospitals or in clinics. So now, you know, for some of our academic partners and I, and I, and academic listeners and also for community, because, you know, I, I think of this as a, as a, as a, as a show where, you know, we speak to a, a broad group of people, but I can tell you in my experience, I can't imagine there's a whole lot of incentive as a physician for working this way, because are you not paid based on the patients you see in the hospital or in the ED and all of that. So then when you spend time out in community and working with folks like Alina and faith-based leaders and all of that, is there somewhere, and I look at this all the time in public health, right? Because we love the community participatory model mm-hmm. and people talk about community participation and research and, and outreach and in service and all of that. But then it's a mismatch oftentimes for how the academy rewards people and rewards performance and the things that we are tracking on the scoreboard to say whether or not professor or faculty member A is successful and then we compare them to professor or faculty member B. And we're talking about people who are both doing work that's good and that's impactful but very different. So is there sort of a... If you could have it your way, is there a, a gap that you might fill or a, a something? You know, you got you were in front of the AMA today and you said, listen, if we really took on medicine living outside of the halls of, of clinics and hospitals, this is what would be possible. Like what what might you want to see or how might we change how we incentivize or reward physicians and other healthcare workers for working that way? So there's a two-part answer. I think so the first part is the um, is that it's the challenges of working um, in the interface between communities and medicine is the the startup cost. So there's a lot of mm. time spent in the beginning sort of do building, Stakeholder, doing stakeholder engagement and building trust with the, the with the community and they with you and but that is incredibly important and incredibly necessary and it just takes time. There's I don't think there's any way to speed that speed that process on on everyone's part on both the the academics and the community's part. It's a and so I think that the I. Th- think that the the academic piece um, could be more cognizant of the the time and effort requirements of that and change metrics such as 
publications or tenure timelines, things like that, to be aware of this work. But frankly, it's not it's not that different than our basic science colleagues. So like going back to the people that have labs and things, they have to learn new techniques and they're starting their careers. It also takes a long time. Yeah. And so I think that just recognizing the the time commitment is similar to some of our other colleagues. It's um, would be the the first thing that would change that I, that I would sort of if if I was recommending you know to the dean of the medical school or the AMA how to promote this uh, among physicians that I think that would be one of the first things I would recommend, um, and I think that the second um, the second thought is that. Um, sort of one of the principles of community-based participatory research is it's not research for um, research sake, it's research for sort of improvement and improvement in measurable outcomes in the community. And I think that those, just remembering that this isn't, you know, a, a, the approach isn't to, you know, show that, you know, there are differences, the, the approach is to really do something and and help and improve and so I think that remembering that that you're you and your team are really given this extraordinary opportunity to really make a difference and that difference is measured by measurable outcomes helps sort of steer the the research pathway I love it I love it so all we got to do is get you into a dean's position or <laughs> heading some hospital or healthcare system. That's right. And then, um, and then we can transform that into some funding mechanism. I know. I know, right? Right. And so I, I can't help but think, as you were saying, um, you know, really the, um, a, a better appreciation and acceptance of the time that it takes to work this way. And I, I, my brain immediately went to, and time is money. So I think we, you know, knowing that we have to sort of keep unpacking and doing the work because if, you know, I think about it in terms like this, if you're at a restaurant, right, and, you, and we've probably all been there where you've sat at your table a little too long, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And the, 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 the waiter or the waitress comes over and says, oh, do you need anything else? Uh, <laughs> right. Have you enjoyed yourself? <laughs> we've run out of water, so I'm, I'm not going to refill your water. <laughs> Right? Because how do restaurants make money? They don't make money if you sit there for three hours. They make money by turning those tables over. It's the butts in the chair is where the money's being made. And so I would imagine also in healthcare, it's physicians, you know, physician time being devoted to patients, right? But then if we look at the broader system and the actual economic burden of poor health and disease, and treatment and intervention versus prevention. You know, depending on who you ask, you'll, you'll get different numbers. But you know, somewhere in the world of a, a dollar of of prevention is worth you know a hundred, a thousand dollars worth of treatment, right? And so that time thing that you talk about, I think, also moves us back on that continuum more into a you know kind of prevention and a holistic kind of health paradigm. But then the question is, who pays? We pay either way. We pay on the back yeah, end that's right. with a, a healthcare system that's really about treating people, mm -hmm. or we pay on the front end with time and treatment. You jump in, so, Ellen. Yeah, because when you mentioned holistic, 
you made me think about um, just thinking about becoming stroke ready. So this is uh, it's put on the individual. So I would know I would be aware, you know, of stroke. What are the symptoms? And also present enough or watching or connecting with people enough to be able to see that there's something wrong. So it really takes us back to a place where we are in a caring mode for each other, a community of caring people looking out for each other but understanding stroke better. Yeah, I love it. And the thing, yeah. the thing about this is very cool to me is that I like how you pointed to, Ella, we're getting people prepared but we're also now stirring up the waters for how do we actually create a system of care right. where everything right. is not just about the individual. I always tell people we're not going to program our way out of all of our problems. Right. But at the same time, programs are so critical and so important because they are such a primary mechanism. Right. What would really be great is, with, is if we had a system mm -hmm. that would support those programs getting where they need to be. Right. 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 And so, Dr. Leslie, having physicians like you, having great multi-talented people like Alina Oliver, all of the many partners you mentioned, I feel like this is what is really at the forefront of this movement and of this work. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, if people wanted to know more about Stroke Ready, let's say I'm a church, I'm in Flint, I want to, or I'm in Genesee County or you know, the, the, the area, and I wanted to have somebody come, how can I find out more information? Do you have a website? We have a website. www.strokeready.com. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. You get you get the smartest person in the room on the easiest question. What's your website? I was like, is it .org or .com? I can't remember. <laughs> I actually, I actually have it written down. Yeah, it's right here. <laughs> the sound guys get mad. We're laughing too loud. Did we make it? Just and everything. Uh, okay, so for more information, people can visit www.strokeready.com. And I think the cool thing is, I mean, for the the folks in this community, they get to really benefit and see this up uh, close and personal, live and live in color. But I would say everybody who hears this, can we make them ambassadors? Yeah, definitely. For having people be stroke ready? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Just reach out to us. We have tons of materials. We're happy to distribute them. Yeah, and I would offer, We gonna, I'm going to say it again because I, don't, I think the things that matter, you can't say enough. Your two points, one, that stroke is treatable. And maybe I think it is three points. Mm -hmm. <laughs> stroke is preventable. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. Stroke is preventable. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so we know we got to start dealing with a lot of those things that underlie stroke primarily hypertension mm -hmm. and we're not even going to get into right now that's another show a different yep. show maybe with a different expert <laughs> on how we do that yeah, that's right how do we deal with the things underneath of hypertension and sort of structural mm -hmm. things and and social determinants of health but stroke is preventable and stroke is treatable mm -hmm. and 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 you can know the symptoms you got a great acronym fast which i think is perfect because you want to act fast when it happens. Mm -hmm. If you see face drooping, you can ask the person to smile. You might see a crooked smile. You might notice one eyebrow a little lower than the other one. The arm weakness, you can ask them to hold their arms out if one falls down quicker or they're, you notice they're dropping things. And speech, if you notice changes in speech or impediments in speech, and it might even be slight then the key is time. Time is of the essence. Don't wait. Don't debate. Err on the side of caution. Call 911 and get the person to the hospital as soon as possible. 
I'm stroke ready. Absolutely. <laughs> I think I am too. You stroke ready? I think I am. All right, Dr. Scalaris, I want to, uh, on behalf of At the Forefront and our listeners and my, um, I will say, guest co-host for now, uh, Miss Ella Green Moten, I want to thank you. Uh, send our love to Alina. I know we uh, hugged her on the way out, but we really do appreciate you and we appreciate the work that you do. Thank you for being here on At the Forefront with us today. But more importantly, thank you for being at the forefront of such important work to bridge health disparities Absolutely. and health equity. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity. It was great. Yeah, I'm Deborah Ferholden, and we'll see you next time.